the second Sunday of Advent. Um, and I love this season um, just because it's this kind of this time of, of waiting. Um, it's a time where the emotions that we feel are really faith and hope. Um, in fact, last, uh, last Sunday, Becca just did a really good job helping us feel that thrill of hope. I mean, Becca, when you, I wasn't here last Sunday, but I listened to your sermon. And when I listened to the story about your dad coming to find you on the southwest side of San Antonio, I got goosebumps. It was perfect, perfect story to describe what Advent, what the first Advent was like. Um, so today is about, um, if you're kind of following in the devotional guides that, that Drew and Jake put together, today is about looking back to look forward. Um, we look back in this season of Advent, we're celebrating the first Advent of Christ so that we can look forward to the second Advent or the second coming of Christ. And so in order to do that, we're going to read um, from Isaiah, uh, specifically Isaiah chapter 42, uh, verses 1 through 9. So let's read that together. This is on page 602 in your black Bibles, if you got them next to you. So Isaiah 42. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says the Lord, thus, thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, so I think to start off, we got to go back to the beginning. And last week, Becca talked about the Proto-Evangelium, uh, which is essentially the first prophecy, the first Messianic prophecy that would describe Jesus and his purpose and his intent. And I think the really important thing about that moment is this is right after Adam and Eve sinned and fell short. Um, and one of the first things that God tells them is, I will, your offspring, I will make it so that your offspring will crush the head of the enemy. So I think what is happening there is God is saying, despite your failure, my purpose is still for you to participate in the salvation of the world. And it's, it's amazing that that's the first message of the gospel is that God is saying, even though you screwed up Adam and Eve, I want you to be a part of this. And that's why he said that. Um, for the nation Israel, God chose Abraham. And Abraham was chosen because his faith was credited to him as righteousness. Um, 
And from Abraham, God promised a nation of offspring, which would be like stars. And I think that image is so perfect, especially in the season of Advent, because if you look up at the night sky and you see this black canvas, stars are like little pieces of light poking through that black canvas. And we see that throughout the line of Israel. We see people, men and women, who are light in a darkness from Jacob to Rahab to Joshua, Moses, Deborah, Ruth, and and on, uh, even King David. They're, They're all light in the darkness They're all showing the way of God. Um, The problem was that despite the goodness of these select few men and women, um, Israel continued to stray from the way of God. Um, And they had trouble fulfilling the purpose that God had originally intended for Adam and even then for man, which was to participate in the salvation of the world. And in fact, um, there's a timeline here, I think, on a slide. I kind of want to show what was going on. So at the time of this prophecy, there's a few things. So 931 BC, Israel is divided into Israel and Judah. So we've already got division in the kingdom. Um, During Isaiah's life and a lot of his prophecy, Israel was actually conquered by Assyria. And what happened was the Israelites were dispersed Um, And Assyrian cultures were actually brought into Samaria, the capital of Israel. And so that's going on. So right before uh, the time of when this prophecy was either written or what it was prophesying about, Judah was also exiled. It was conquered by Babylon and the people were brought out of the land of Judah, brought out of Jerusalem and into Babylon. And the same thing, Babylonian people came into Jerusalem. So what is happening here is this forced cultural assimilation. And what is happening here is that God, in a sense, gave Israel and Judah what they wanted. Um, And in fact, before the Assyrian conquering of Israel, the king Hosea, he was actually paying tribute to the Assyrian king. He he was basically saying, "We, we want what you have. And this was the problem, is that Israel thought that their way and their authority was greater than God's way and his authority. So let's go back um, to the prophecy. And in the first stanza, we'll just read that first stanza. It says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. We see justice is repeated three times, and I think that is a very important theme here. What God is saying through this prophecy is that whoever this servant is, is going to come and restore justice to the earth. That word justice in Hebrew is mishpat. And what mishpat actually means, um, it, it, it doesn't really convey, like when we think of justice, we think of you know, a judge and a jury and sort of this passing down of a verdict and it goes one way or another. Um, what mishpat really describes for the Israelites and the Jews at the time is a custom or a manner or a way of doing things. 
And in fact, in 2 Kings 17, there's a whole chapter that actually describes the Assyrian conquering of, of Israel. And that word mishpat is actually used four times in that chapter. It's used twice to describe the customs and manners of the pagan cultures and the pagan gods that have come into Israel. And it's used twice to describe the ways and customs of Yahweh, God. And the writer does that to juxtapose that the Israelites had traded the truth about God for a lie. And they had worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. They put themselves above God and they lost their way. So now going into the second stanza of of the the prophecy, um, this is the Lord. He's speaking to his servant and he says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. And I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. So we see something very clear here, which is this way of justice, this mishpat of God looks like light. And what the servant's role is, is to come and bring light into a dark place, to open the eyes really of the Israelites here so that they might be restored to and see the mishpat of God, the way of God, the right and good way that he had originally intended for man from the very beginning with Adam and Eve. So who is this servant that we read about in the prophecy? Jesus. Yeah, exactly. Um, That's the Sunday school answer. It's Jesus. Yes. Uh, This prophecy absolutely points to Jesus in his coming during the first advent. Um, There is another way to interpret the scripture. And I actually think that both are relevant. The other way is that God is actually describing Israel. And actually, if you read through um, Isaiah chapters 40 through 55, which is really called the servant's discourse, you will see God describe over and over again, behold, my chosen servant, Israel. And so what's happening here is I think, yes, he's talking about Jesus, but he's also talking about the nation of Israel. And God is saying, guys, from the very beginning, my purpose for you, Israel, was to bring light to the nations was to free those who were in the dungeon and bring them out of darkness and into light. And the way that he accomplished that was through Jesus. And in fact, if we read Matthew chapter 12, verse 18, this is God speaking about Jesus. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul delights. I will put my spirit on him. And he will proclaim justice to the nations. Now that justice is written in Greek in the New Testament. But I bet if we translated it to Hebrew, it would look a lot like Mishpat. Jesus came to restore the way of God to Israel so that they might see righteousness. So that they might see the way that was supposed to be lived. God became a man and came into the nation Israel at a time when they had completely lost their way so that they could regain their sight and see what was going on. Jesus actually had a perspective of why he came as well. And I think these are just sort of some selective scriptures of what Jesus said about why he came. He said, I came to bring light into the darkness. I came to bear witness to the truth, to seek and save the lost, to do the will of the Father 
not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is who Jesus was, and this is why Jesus came. Straight from his mouth, not mine. And I think that's really important for us uh, to understand what did Jesus' servanthood, what did his service to humanity look like? As we're in this season of Advent, we're celebrating the first coming of Christ and what he did for the nation Israel and how he showed them the Mishpat. As we await the second coming of Christ, we look to Jesus to understand our purpose. And so I think the best way to sort of guide our understanding of Jesus and the way that he served is actually um, a scripture in Matthew uh, 22, where somebody asks uh, Jesus, essentially, what is the greatest commandment? Um, This is actually one of the Pharisees or Sadducees who was a lawyer. He asked him this. And Jesus' response, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. On these two commandments depend all of the law and all of the prophets. Therefore, we could interpret this as on these two commandments is captured the way of God. And I think what Jesus is saying is there's a very important linkage between serving God and serving others. And what Jesus is saying is you cannot do the one and not do the other. In fact, if you think you're doing the one and you're not doing the other, you're probably not doing the one at all. It's a really important message for Christians who can sometimes just get caught feeling like we're serving God and we actually forget to serve others. Um, And in fact, actually in Matthew 25, here's another great scripture where Jesus actually says, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. From Jesus's mouth is the explanation that to serve God is to serve the least of those among us. And how did Jesus serve? What did that actually look like? I mean, open your Bible to just about any page in the gospel and you will see the way that Jesus served the nation Israel that he came to. He healed the sick. He opened the eyes of the blind. He opened the ears of the deaf. He taught truth. He respected women and children and outcasts and strangers. He calmed storms to preserve the life of sailors. All of these things, he's using his deity to serve people Even though he was a man, even though he was bound up in flesh, he used his power to serve. That's what Jesus looked like when he came. He looked like a servant. And so in a way, Jesus, through his servanthood and through his coming, he fulfilled and completed the work that God had set before Israel. He actually being the king of the Jews, the king of Israel, he came and represented Israel to God and completed the work that God had intended for them. And he did that by serving. So in the first advent, Jesus brought light to Israel so that they might recover the mishpat, the way of God. So what does this look like for us, right? 
Now we're here, we're awaiting the second coming, the second advent of God. And we want to know, what do we do? How do we wait? What does it look like to wait for God? What does it look like to wait for Jesus? Um, I think, you know, it actually makes sense to look at Isaiah chapter 41, because there's a really interesting thing happening here. This is a very similar prophecy, and it's one of those that points to Israel as a servant. It says, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Do you see what is in there? from the ends of the earth and from the farthest corners. So he's not just describing Israel here. He's describing the whole world. He's describing all of mankind and all of humanity. And he's saying, I've made you my servant. I've chosen you and not cast you off. That should fill us with hope. God has chosen us even after the first coming of Jesus to be his servant, to serve him in a way that brings light to the world, that brings salvation the world. And in fact, in Ephesians 2, Paul writes, he says, let's see, let me find my, myself here. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off in the farthest corners have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Paul's describing here the relationship between the Jew and the Gentile. He's describing a relationship between two cultures which are ideological, religious, background, origin, ethnicity mismatches. And what he's saying is Jesus has broken down the wall of hostility. He's removed enmity between men. You know, Jesus said, I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. And so I think as we read the scripture in Ephesians, we have to think about who are the people in my life who look totally different from me, who are ideologically different from me, who have different values from me, who have a different background, different origin, different race, different ethnicity, different sexual orientation, different political leaning. Whatever it is, the people who don't look like me, who I don't understand. God is calling us to serve those people. And that is the way of Jesus. He did it in his culture every step. He he served the people that the culture rejected. They said, you're not worthy to be here, sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes. All of you people don't have a place of belonging in our culture. All of you people don't have a place of belonging in the nation of Israel. And Jesus came for them. What does that say to us now as Christians? It's challenging, right? It's really challenging. We've been shown the way of love by Jesus. And actually in 1 Corinthians 13, um, Paul talks about faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. 1 Corinthians 13 has that famous wedding scripture about love. Love is patient. Love is kind. 
And he's describing that love is actually greater than the faith and the hope that the Israelites had. So where Israel, the nation that awaited the first advent of Christ, had faith, and they had hope that the Messiah would come, we now, having seen the Messiah, have been given love. And the greatest of these is love. So we have been empowered by the Holy Spirit to go out and love and serve the world and be a light for the nations. In Philippians, Paul again describes the example of Christ's humility. He says, he says to us, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself to the point of death. He gave his life, even though he could have taken it back at any moment. And I think that's a really important point, is that although he was God, and although he had been bestowed, he had all of the power of Yahweh, the creator of the universe. He had all of that power as God. And yet, he did not use any of that power to save himself. He only used it to serve people, to heal their sickness that took divine power, to feed 5,000, that took divine power. All of these things that he did took divine power, but he never once used that divine power to bring himself down from the cross. And I think that tells us, it shows us a very important picture that what God intended when he sent Jesus was not that God was just going to come in and say, all the work, man, that you have done through me up until this point, I'm just going to sweep it away, and I'm going to bring in my power, and just, you know, do another Noah's Ark. God promised never to do that again. And so what he was doing was saying, I'm giving you this man, Jesus, though he is God, though he has the form of God, he will be like a man, and he will submit even to the point of death. I mean, think about it. When the Pharisees killed Jesus, that was murder. In cold blood, no witnesses, no trial, that's murder. That was sin. And yet Jesus submitted even to that. We look at Jesus and we see that he came to complete the work that we were meant to have. The original purpose of man to bring light to the nations. So in the first advent, Israel, they saw Jesus and they saw Jesus fulfill the work that God had given them to do. Jesus came as a servant. 
He came in humility and he showed them the way. He showed them the mishpat of God. He restored them into their right standing with God so that they could go out and serve the nations. And that's where we find ourselves now as we await the second coming of Christ. We don't really know what the second coming of Christ is going to look like, nor do we know the hour or the time. Um, we have some ideas from some, some writings in the New Testament, um, but we really don't know. But I would imagine that the second advent, in some ways, might look similar to the first, in that what God will want to do is to come and complete the work that we, his people, are doing here on earth through him and through the power that he gives to us in the Holy Spirit. I think the important thing to note in all of this is that we go back and we look at Adam and Eve and the way that they fell and the way that God's purpose did not change even after they fell. That his purpose to include them and their offspring in the salvation of the world did not change. And if there's one thing that we know about God, it's that his purpose and his will is steadfast and sure. So his purpose has not changed, even today, even after the coming of Jesus. His purpose is still that we Christians, the vessels of the Holy Spirit left behind by the Lord Jesus, would participate in the salvation of the world and bring light to those in darkness. So I want to leave you guys with uh, a quote from Anne Voskamp. Um, she actually posted this on Instagram, I think about a week ago, and my wife, Catherine, shared this with me, and it's perfect. Um, she's speaking about Advent. She says, if you look closely, you can see it. Light is poking holes through the dark story everywhere, and there are light pokers everywhere we turn, women telling the truth Men standing for justice, families welcoming in a child, a stranger, a refugee. Whole communities doing hard and holy and right things, exploding supernovas, starting to change the story of everything. Light pokers, all of us. It's the light pokers poking holes in the dark, poking holes in the dark story, who stir up a flame to draw people to the passion of the Christ. This is Advent. This is about the coming of Christ. This is about the coming of the light of the kingdom of God. Advent is a whole lot more than waiting for Christmas. Advent is a whole lot more than preparing for Christmas. Advent is ultimately about preparing the way for the light of Christ in a world dying for light. Advent is a whole lot more than passively waiting for the king. It's about actively participating in the work of the kingdom of God. The first advent of Christ began the reconciliation of everything and now begs our daily participation. And the second advent will be the consummation of everything and now begs our daily anticipation. So just some application, some call to action. I think that what it looks like to serve the way that Jesus served, like Ann Voskamp said, it's hard and it's holy and it's right. And it's a very, very difficult thing to obtain, especially by our own power, but even through the power of the Holy Spirit in us. In Romans chapter five, Paul actually says, describing Jesus, he says, 
essentially very few people would give their life even for a righteous man, even for a good person. And yet Jesus, while we were still sinners, gave his life for us. And so I think great point of application. Um, When we think about how we serve people, about how we want to submit to others to the point of death, think about ways that you can die to yourself and to your needs with those who are good to you. Start there. Start with your spouse, with your children, with your closest friends, because they have needs um, that may not align with what you want or what you need, but that's a great opportunity to lay down what you need and what you want for their sake. And that might take a lifetime to master. I mean, I'm still just in the very early nascent stages of learning what it means to do that for my wife, the woman who I love the most in the entire world. But let's say you feel like you've mastered that. If you're like, you know, Cass or somebody. (laughs) Then start to think about what it would look like to die to yourself, to those who don't share your values, to those who don't look like you, to those who might slander you or reject you or vote for the wrong guy or gal. Think about that. How can you die to them to save their souls? Isn't that what Jesus was about? Why do we care so much as Christians about protecting ourselves? Israel, the nation Israel, before the coming of Jesus, they rejected him and killed him because they thought that the Messiah was going to come to exalt Israel and restore Israel into this great nation. And when he didn't do that, and in fact, when he challenged the authority that Israel had set up, they killed him. And so I think for us today, our goal should not be to preserve Christianity, preserve our religion, preserve our doctrine, make sure that what we believe upholds the moral authority in this world. God will be the judge. Our job is, is to carry on the mission and the work of Jesus, which is to serve those that we don't understand, to love those who don't love us, and to submit ourselves to the point of even death to bring light and salvation to the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit given to us to help us love like you did. We know that we are broken vessels, that we do not have what it takes apart from you to love like you did. And so, Father, we ask for your power. We ask for your authority. We ask for all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we would be able to submit, perhaps even to the point of death, to love the world like you did so that the world might see your light, so that on your second coming, the entire world, all of humanity would be restored and renewed and reconciled to you and your kingdom. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus.